Hello, and welcome to our next installment of History in World War II. I'm Dr. S. Mocker, and today we're going to be talking about minorities in World War II and how they experienced the war. For many minorities in World War II, uh, this war drastically uh, changed their outlook on uh, their status and their freedoms uh, during wartime and the possibility for expanded rights and freedoms after the conclusion of World War II. So we're going to talk about a couple of different groups today, and in case you're wondering why this episode is titled The American Dilemma. We're going to talk about that today too. Short answer, The American Dilemma is the name of a book published in 1944. We're going to talk about how that book connects in uh, to the minority experience of World War II later in this podcast. So we've talked earlier about the role of propaganda in selling World War II to the American public and in getting people uh, to get adjusted to things like rationing, uh, industrial work, and the everyday reality uh, of a total war economy and a total war lay- way of life. We see with World War II a celebration of diversity. And a lot of this stems from uh, this shift in talking about immigrants uh, that we started to see at the end of the 1920s, the shift away from this notion of Americanization, or that immigrants who come over should completely appropriate American culture and forget that immigrants should completely give up their original culture of their homelands, uh, learn English, uh, and adopt mainstream American culture, whatever that meant. Because as we talked about before, there's no one right way to be a good American. However, as we've previously discussed, at the end of the 1920s, there's a shift away from this notion of Americanization that all immigrants have to give up uh, their uh, home identities upon migration to the United States, and instead this notion that we should celebrate this diversity, so what we call cultural pluralism. So the notion is that immigrates, immigrants will uh, assimilate in at least some form, because it is economically and socially feasible to do things like learn English, uh, to take the citizenship test, to participate in voting, while still maintaining ties to their culture and their homeland, whether that means speaking their native language with members uh, of their immigrant communities, practicing their religion, even if it's not Protestant Christianity, uh, and continuing uh, to uh, do other things associated with their individual culture. So this is the idea that America's diversity is a strength. And this is one that's going to be really heavily emphasized during World War II and propaganda, particularly in popular culture. So if anybody's ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg is a film buff. He loves old movies. And he puts a lot of references to uh, his film echoing trends that we see during movies produced during World War II. So, for example, one of the things that was very popular in movies produced during World War II was to emphasize the diversity of America by depicting a unit of soldiers as uh, incredibly diverse. So usually you had stock characters like a city boy from Brooklyn Uh, a Jewish character, kind of like a rural southern farm boy, uh, sort of Midwestern school teacher. All of these tropes are going to sound familiar to you if you've seen the film Saving Private Ryan, because Steven Spielberg uses those same tropes 
as a loving nod and reference to films made during World War II. What you don't see a lot of in films made during World War II are non-white people. Part of this is due to the fact that the armed forces are still racially segregated during World War II. There are some movies that do try um, during World War II to include minority characters. For example, uh, the film Guadalcanal, uh, which was made fairly soon after the Battle of Guadalcanal, depicts an African-American sailor uh, in one scene as uh, these white sailors and marines that the film follows are on this uh, ship waiting to be deployed to Guadalcanal. And he's in a blink and you'll miss it kind of scene. I think he only has one or two speaking lines, if I remember correctly. And yet... Uh, that scene with him in the center of these soldiers is actually the disc art on the DVD version. So Hollywood tries to get around uh, these real-life uh, separations uh, to depict uh, minorities. You also have uh, the following of boxer Joe Lewis, the only the second African-American heavyweight champion in boxing following Jack Johnson. Uh, he actually uh, enlists in the army when World War II breaks out, and there are propaganda materials surrounding his service as well. Where we do get a lot of depictions of minorities in films set during World War II are actually films that come out in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, this is in part an attempt uh, to capture minority film audiences uh, in a time period where there's kind of a wave of nostalgia for World War II. So we'll see films like The Dirty Dozen or Force 10 from Navarone uh, including minority characters, and in some cases going to great narrative gymnastics uh, to do so and to make it logical given, again, the very real separation of minorities uh, within the branches of service. What this war ends up doing is for many what we call ethnic Americans, so for example, Jewish Americans, Polish Americans, Irish Americans, so these groups that we today consider white but weren't before World War II, this is where they start being considered white rather than this kind of other weird group because in the case of the Irish, they were Catholic, so too with many Poles. Again, with Jews, also a religious difference. So this is really where we start to see uh, these groups become more fully incorporated into white American identity. So the sense is they kind of earn their place uh, at the table of white America during World War II. So the impact of all of this World War II propaganda on celebrating uh, cultural diversity is really to be an effective tool. When we have propaganda from the Office of War Information that is emphasizing uh, to minorities that they are a very important part of the war effort, that we should celebrate uh, their contributions and their culture, that gives a lot of minority groups a very real hope that finally will have a government that's more responsive to their needs and to their desires uh, for better exercising civil liberties and rights. So let's take a look at some different minority group experiences during World War II. So let's talk about Mexican Americans during World War II. For Mexican Americans, World War II really starts to demonstrate to them that the idea of racial uplift is not realistic when it comes to attaining rights. 
So racial uplift was first proposed by Booker T. Washington and the African-American community back in the late 1800s during the Gilded Age uh, to basically say that the way for African-Americans to gain more civil rights after being repeatedly denied the right to vote and after uh, the adoption of Jim Crow segregation in the South, the way for African-Americans to get more rights was to embrace segregation and to work hard and to adopt white middle-class values. And eventually white people would look at them and be like, hey, they're doing a really good job. We should give them more rights. That doesn't work. Um, African-Americans had realized that during World War I and had moved uh, towards a more activist approach uh, to gaining rights, uh, spearheaded by scholars and activists like W.B. Du Bois. But for many Mexican-Americans, there's still this notion that racial uplift is a viable strategy, at least going into World War II. There are many dissenters on this. Uh, for example, um, a Mexican diplomat uh, located at the uh, Mexican consulate in Los Angeles famously said that if Mexicans wanted to become American, they would have to bleach their skin, dye their hair blonde, and change their eyes to blue. So in other words, he didn't think it was possible for Mexicans and Mexican-Americans to become fully embraced by the white community without literally becoming white. Nevertheless, many Mexican-Americans still had this notion of hard work and opportunity and embracing white mainstream values. And what World War II really demonstrates for them is that this strategy is not working, that they're still very much uh, the victims of discrimination. Particularly, we see this with the Bracero program. So the Bracero program was a program that uh, was... Uh, an agreement between the United States and Mexico to send in laborers to the United States to fill labor shortages and things like agricultural production and mining. Because these were Mexican nationals, they weren't allowed to work in, say, war materials production because you had to be a citizen to work in war materials production. Uh, but they were seen as potentially vital in the agricultural industry. The Bracero program will start in 1942 and will actually continue until 1964. And during the duration of this program, 4.5 million Mexicans will become Bracero workers. Many Bracero workers did not receive good treatment uh, in the United States, particularly in Texas. Uh, the Mexican government actually forbid Bracero workers from going to Texas on work contracts for a period of time after uh, they saw rampant discrimination against Mexicans by the Texas state government. Many Mexican-Americans joined the military, and even though African-Americans, and as we'll talk about shortly, Japanese-Americans were in segregated units away from white soldiers, this was not the case for Mexican-Americans, particularly because white Americans were still sort of trying to figure out what to do with Mexicans. Uh, previously, white or Anglo-America pretty much said, well, it depends upon your ancestry, right? If you have more Spanish blood, then you can be white. If you have more indigenous or native ancestry, then sorry, you're not white. So this is part of the reason why Mexican-Americans were not uh, in segregated units during World War II. And this is part of what makes it a little difficult to say with any degree of certainty how many Mexican-Americans served in the military during World War II. When we look at census records, for example, during this time, they're not asking questions uh, about um, 
ancestry or Mexican identity. In fact, not really until the 1980s does the census start uh, to ask about Hispanic uh, or uh, Chicano uh, identity. And so really for us, looking at Mexican-Americans during this time period, we rely very heavily on questions and censuses asking about languages spoken at home. One group that uh, suffered very visibly during World War II uh, discrimination and violence against them were young Mexican-American men and women living in Los Angeles. This is the site of the infamous Zoot Suit Riot of May and June 1943. So the Zoot Suit Riot began with uh, tensions between the military and the local Mexican-American community in Los Angeles. Um, there were a lot of tensions over the location of several new military installations in areas that were adjacent to Mexican-American residential neighborhoods, uh, particularly sites like Chavez Ravine, which today uh, is the site of Dodger Stadium, if you're a baseball fan. Many Mexican-American communities were raised and relocated in the name of urban renewal following World War II. And many Mexican-Americans resented the increased presence of uh, white, and especially white Southern, uh, military men uh, in their neighborhoods as they were commuting to these new military installations. And in exchange, there was a lot of anxiety and fear-mongering in the white community over these young uh, Mexican-American men, mostly, wearing this zoot suit. So in Los Angeles, we have the existence of a subculture called Pachuco. And Pachucos uh, could be male or female. They were mostly, but not exclusively, Mexican-American. Uh, Pachucos tended to speak a slang called Calo, which incorporated Spanish and some indigenous language. Uh, they loved to go swing dancing, and typically they adopted as their sort of visible uniform the zoot suit. If you've never seen a zoot suit, the classic example of one uh, in pop culture is probably uh, the mask. So think of Jim Carrey's uh, character, the mask, in that iconic yellow uh, suit. So zoot suits uh, are have very exaggerated jackets. They uh, oftentimes the jacket would go down uh, at least mid-thigh, almost to knee, and be very oversized with broad shoulders. The pants on a zoot suit were uh, kind of like hammer pants um, or uh, very exaggerated joggers, if you're too young to understand the hammer pants reference, um, so that they were very wide throughout the thigh, but they kind of came in narrow and tapered at the ankle. These zoot suits oftentimes be topped off with hats, on the West Coast, the zoot suits usually were uh, muted colors, so like normal suiting colors in the hat style, worn what we call a pancake hat, so relatively flat, uh, not a very wide brim going around it. Uh, on the East Coast, it's mainly white teenagers or African Americans wearing zoot suits, and there is where we get the kind of more iconic, colorful, bright zoot suit coming from the East Coast. Uh, the media, the press, the newspapers in Los Angeles called the zoot suit a badge of hoodlumism and constantly printed stories arguing that the only people who ever wore zoot suits were juvenile delinquents and criminals. And so there was this hype in the press about these guys being dangerous gang members. Uh, and this comes to a head in uh, late May and early June 1943 when white servicemen uh, stationed in Los Angeles decide that the Los Angeles Police Department is not doing enough 
uh, to deal with this zoot suit problem. And so they take matters into their own hands and start attacking uh, young men wearing zoot suits, uh, beating them and stripping them of their zoot suits. This happens over a period of several nights and does not end until the Navy cancels all shore leave and other military branches similarly cancel leave in an attempt to lock down this rampage by servicemen against the Mexican-American community. Do all zoot-suited youths commit crimes? No. Uh, in fact, many zoot-suiters patriotically enlisted in the military for service. Uh, they were outraged by being described as unpatriotic, and this actually caused a little bit of a foreign relations flap between the United States and Mexico, with Mexico seeing the Zoot Suit Riot as an example of a race riot or a riot in which individuals are targeted because of their identity, um, and the United States vigorously saying that no, these servicemen are only going after criminal youth. The Zoot Suit Riot is really a turning point when it comes to Mexican-American civil rights. For many Mexican-Americans, this really details to them that they need to adopt a more activist approach to gaining civil rights and being free of this kind of violence and discrimination. So this is the time period where we start to get an emerging sense of Chicano identity. Uh, in particular, it will be veterans of World War II who are at the forefront of pushing for Mexican-American civil rights and organizations like LULAC following. When we look at other groups, um, their experience with World War II is a little bit more positive overall. Native Americans, like Mexican Americans, were not segregated in the armed forces, and many of them chose to enlist uh, to show their patriotism, their place in American society, and for more opportunities. In particular, uh, the armed forces start a program called the Navajo Code Talkers, which remained top secret until the 1970s. Navajo Code Talkers uh, were basically a group specifically chosen because of their indigenous language. So one of the big concerns in any military conflict is making sure that your communication is secure and encrypted. And the U.S. military really knew that whatever code that they invented uh, for communications would be more secure if they could communicate in a language that was not likely to be understood by outsiders. And so this is where the U.S. Uh, starts to look at indigenous languages or native languages in the United States for a potential for use in this coded communication. The Navajo language is chosen for this program in part because it is exceedingly difficult to learn uh, if you are not uh, raised as a native speaker. There are some words in which there are many different uh, ways of saying that word. So, for example, in English, we have one general word for black, uh, and in Navajo, there are many more words uh, for that same color that could be used. And so they start recruiting on Navajo reservations for these code talkers to volunteer for this training. Uh, essentially, they are instructed to speak in their na native language to each other, uh, but also to talk in code on top of that. So consider it essentially double encoded. The likelihood of any Japanese or German or Italian uh, being able to understand Navajo was close to zero. Because it was so incredibly effective, it was never broken as a code, 
the U.S. military kept it classified until the 1970s in case they wanted to use it for future conflicts. And so it took a couple of decades before the contributions of the Navajo in particular were known to the public. Now, Navajo code talkers were mostly used in the Pacific. Each code talker was equipped with a radio and a bodyguard with the understanding that if there was danger of a uh, code talker being captured by the Japanese, the bodyguard was instructed to kill the code talker so the code would not be compromised. So this was not a duty uh, that people signed up for lightly. Many Native Americans who did not enlist for military service did join other Americans in migrating to centers of war production and getting jobs uh, in industry. So what this ends up doing is this ends up shifting the population center for Native Americans away from reservation lands and spreading them out more in cities across the United States. For Native Americans, World War II ends up becoming a net positive because many Native American veterans are able to take advantage of the GI Bill and for the first time attain college education uh, and assistance uh, in things like mortgage applications and business loans for the first time. So this actually results in an economic boom for Native Americans after the war. World War II is decidedly more complicated for Asian Americans, particularly uh, for Japanese Americans, as we'll get to in a second. But for Chinese, Korean, and Filipino Americans, they were looked at with sympathy and friendship during World War II, in part because China, Korea, and the Philippines were all occupied by Japan. So Chinese, Korean, and Filipino Americans were all seen as vital allies because their homeland was also under attack by the Japanese. For Japanese Americans, though, because Japan was our primary enemy in the Pacific, they were viewed with suspicion. And unlike German and Italian Americans, they could not easily just blend in to the population because of their racial difference. Because of this concern over uh, loyalty to the homeland of Japan, the U.S. government uh, issues an executive order and relocates all Japanese living on the west coast in a particular zone inland. So the idea is... Sorry, Sippy is determined to get her two cents in on this topic. So the idea behind this order is by removing Japanese Americans from the West Coast, this would make it so that the Japanese uh, military and Navy were deprived of any potential assistance in the event of an invasion of the West Coast. Which, again, given that the Japanese were occupying part of the Aleutian Islands during World War II, was not an unfound fear by the U.S. military. 70% of uh, Japanese Americans lived on the West Coast, so the vast majority of Japanese Americans found themselves being told that they had very little time to pack up their homes and businesses and be shipped uh, into the interior of the United States. They lived in internment camps uh, at places like Manzanar and Tule Lake. About 110,000 Japanese Americans are shipped to camps. And not all of these are Japanese immigrants or citizens. Many of them were born in the United States. So a lot of these second-generation Japanese, we call Nisei, were also shipped to the U.S., again, despite their status as citizens. And because of this, because two-thirds of the detainees in these camps were citizens, there's a legal case that challenges 
whether the United States can hold American citizens on the sole basis of their racial identity. So Fred Korematsu, one of these Nisei or first-generation American uh, detainees, leads a court case called Korematsu versus the United States in 1944. The Supreme Court hears this case and in a six-third six to three decision upholds the legality of this internment. It should be important to, to you to note that Korematsu versus the United States remains legal precedent until very, very recently. We're talking last year, kind of recently. So until the Supreme Court definitively overrules Korematsu versus the United States, this legal precedent that the United States could just round up people based on their identity, based on race, ethnicity, potentially religion, kind of hung over uh, like a dark cloud. So again, it's only belatedly, as of 2019, uh, removed as legal precedent and finally overturned. Many of the Nisei or the first generation American citizens living in these camp uh, camps were given an option to enlist in the armed forces. About 20,000 young Japanese American men will enlist uh, from the camps. Another 13,000 Japanese American men will enlist from Hawaii. Now notice that the executive order removing Japanese Americans from the West Coast did not mention Hawaii. Part of the reason for this was Hawaii's relative isolation and the size of the Japanese American population in Hawaii. It was much larger uh, in proportion to the population there. There were a lot of people of mixed uh, descent and there was this concern that if you wholesale remove any person with Japanese ancestry and put them in camps in Hawaii that you would pretty much tank the local economy. So in Hawaii the only people put in internment camps were people who were strongly suspected or had some evidence against them that they were operating as enemy agents and remained loyal to the Japanese. So these Japanese-American men who enlisted in the military served in segregated units with white commanders. The first of these units, the 100th, uh, was quickly joined by and combined with the 442nd. The 100th and the 442nd together are among the most decorated groups in the military during World War II, with most of the action for them being in the Italian campaign in 1943 and 44. For African Americans, there was this sense that they wanted to avoid the overenthusiasm and overoptimism that they had shown during World War I. Many African Americans had approached World War I as finally this will be the conflict in which our patriotism and our loyalty to the United States is recognized and therefore we can get more rights. But for African Americans, they were solely disappointed as World War I was followed by a wave of riots and lynchings targeting African American communities and African American veterans of World War I. So World War I had really been the pivot point away from a idea of racial uplift and more towards activism, that protests uh, using the legal system, these were the ways to achieve change. African Americans during World War II, uh, like other Americans, migrate across the United States for war work, 
About 700,000 African Americans move outside the South to urban areas in the North and the West during the war. In many cases, the rate of African American migration drastically outstrips the rate of white migration in proportion uh, to communities. And this caused a lot of conflict for African Americans because racial segregation, while not on the same level, in the North and West as it was in the Jim Crow South where it was legally codified, there were still these things called racially restrictive covenants that were in place in the North and the West. So basically, you could have the deed for a property specify that only white people could live there, for example. And so this made it very difficult for African Americans who migrated into cities like Detroit, New York, and Los Angeles to find adequate housing because they were very much limited to certain pockets, certain African-American neighborhoods that were not zoned in a way to be prohibitive to minority occupation. In Detroit and in Harlem and New York City, we see race riots happen in the same summer uh, as the Zoot Suit Riots, so the summer of 1943. Uh, In Detroit, about 33 people are killed in that riot in June of 1943. Uh, In Harlem, that riot in August of 1943 also results in a loss of life. We also see riots in other places across the summer of 1943, in places like Mobile, Alabama, Beaumont, Texas, even one close to home here in El Paso, or rather a near riot, a riot on Fort Bliss essentially, uh, results in the death of two soldiers. This is something I'm currently in the middle of researching. So these riots, these riots were oftentimes sparked by uh, conflict over public space, recreational space. A fight at Bell Island Park um, in Detroit is what eventually caused the Detroit riot there. Uh, In Harlem, it was an allegation of police brutality against an African-American soldier in uniform that sparked the riot. So these waves of riots across the United States, most publicly in Los Angeles, Detroit, and New York, which actually was the subject of my dissertation uh, research, these riots indicated that there was a serious amount of unrest on the home front, that there was uh, definitely not this let's put all of our differences behind us and work together kind of notion going on, that people still very much held on to old uh, grudges and prejudices during the war. African Americans, as I mentioned, served in segregated uh, units in the service. About one million African Americans will enlist during World War II. Initially, at the beginning of the war, many African Americans were confined mostly to support Uh, or service roles within the military, not combat. Much like every conflict since the American Revolution, uh, they were segregated into units led by white commanders, and again, not expected uh, to engage in combat positions. But this does start to change as we get to the middle of the war. Uh, Famously, generals like uh, Patton stated that he didn't care what color his troops were, so long as they were good. And I'm greatly sanitizing and editing that patent quote. For these service members, there was a lot of concern over discrimination. A lot of military uh, base expansion happened in the American South, and so uh, African-American soldiers stationed at these southern bases very frequently complained about discrimination in the town or the community that the base was located in. Um, We see that in El Paso, there was, before the Fort Bliss riot, Uh, a concern over discrimination, uh, especially in recreational spaces like movie theaters, 
in the El Paso community. And this was considered such a potential problem, the segregation and discrimination faced by African-American service members, that this was considered a real morale problem and a potential security issue for the American Armed Forces. Secretary of War uh, Henry Stimson even kept a file on um, racial discrimination in the armed forces in his personal safe in his office marked top secret. For many service members, the idea of being able to uh, take advantage of the benefits promised by the GI Bill was appealing post-war, but the reality was that African-American veterans did not have the same access to benefits under the GI Bill, in part because banks were far less willing to provide uh, loans and mortgage assistance to African Americans. African Americans were also uh, prohibited in where they could buy houses due to practices like redlining and blockbusting, which we'll talk about in our future podcast on the 1950s. And there's also the fact that education, particularly in the South, is still segregated. So many African Americans were not given equal educational access either and were told they could only go to uh, African American schools and that they were limited uh, in their educational opportunities. The civil rights movement continued during World War II. African American activists were very reluctant to hit pause on activism and instead they came up with a campaign starting in 1942, called Double V for Victory. So what the Double V campaign emphasized was that there should be a push for democracy to succeed abroad, right? That we're all in on this fight against fascism in the war. However, if we achieve victory in the war, but we don't address the lack of access to rights and democracy at home um, by minorities, then have we really won the war? So this was a commitment to continue to push for more rights uh, for minorities and particularly African Americans during the war. A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Pullman Porters, or excuse me, the Sleeping, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, there we go, um, a union representing African American uh, railroad workers, uh, was one of the leading activists. The focus on the civil rights movement throughout the 1930s had been on equal economic opportunities so focusing on the rights of African-American workers. And the Fair Employment Practices Committee uh, that we discussed in our last installment actually happens because of a threat of a public demonstration, a march on Washington, if Franklin Delano Roosevelt did not move to guarantee that there would not be discrimination in employing uh, Americans at war. So A. Philip Randolph threatens this mass demonstration at the uh, National Mall in Washington, D.C. He threatens that African Americans will gather in the thousands to protest if there is not an executive order promising non-discrimination in employment in, in uh, businesses with government contracts. Now, the March on Washington doesn't happen in 1941 because Franklin Delano Roosevelt does give A. Philip Randolph and activists what they want by creating via executive order the Fair Employment Practices Commission, which prohibits discrimination in hiring and promotion. But the idea of the March on Washington, a very public display at the National Mall, will come back in the 1960s. You probably are familiar with uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which is given during the 1963 March on Washington. So this idea 
will be revisited later on. New groups like the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, are founded in 1942 to assist other older groups like the NAACP or the National Advancement, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in pushing for more of these rights. And following the wave of riots that happens during World War II, we do see a willingness by the American public to discuss the issue of race. In particular, um, we have early on um, people like Wendell Wilkie, uh, who wrote in his essay, One World, that Americans could not claim to promote freedom abroad if we did not also promote that freedom for all Americans at home, that we would be rightfully labeled as hypocrites by our enemies if we continued to discriminate against minorities. And in fact, that was a very real threat of propaganda throughout World War II, that the Axis powers did often cite uh, discrimination of minorities and Jim Crow segregation in the South as um, proof that the United States was full of crap. And we do see a lot of cartoons emerging after that wave of riots in 1943, political cartoons by the Axis powers pointing out uh, the amount of help given to the Axis powers by these racist Americans by attacking uh, their brown and uh, black brothers and sisters, to use the family metaphor that was so common during the 1940s. In an episode of very good timing, a Swedish sociologist named Gunnar Myrdal publishes a book called An American Dilemma. Myrdal had actually been hired by uh, the Carnegie Mellon Foundation to work, if I remember the name correctly, uh, to work on a massive study, a sociological study of African Americans in the United States. The study had taken him 10 years to complete. So what good timing that he published his book right after a wave of riots across the United States. Myrtle had been recruited because as a man who was Swedish, he was seen as a white man who was neutral, right? Who was an outsider who could observe uh, the status of American race. Um, Myrtle also, however, did employ a lot of African-American sociologists to do the necessary community studies to get his data. In his two-volume book, Myrtle stated that the Negro problem, as the issue of race had been referred to in the United States, was not that Black people existed, which is oftentimes how the Negro problem was defined. But instead, the problem was that African-Americans had been denied the full promise and benefits of their rights that had been promised to them by the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution passed in the wake of the Civil War. So an American dilemma was really the problem of race and racism in the United States. This was a problem basically created by white people, okay, racist white people. So when asked, how do we fix this problem, right? How do we address this issue of race, which is tearing our nation apart, and harming our productivity in a total war environment, Myrtle suggested the power of education. And this is definitely something that was a big trend, whether it's propaganda by the Office of War Information, which emphasized uh, racial harmony and the contributions of minority groups to the war effort, um, or if we look at a surging demand for educational pamphlets in the wake of these race riots. We see pamphlets like how to avoid a race riot in your hometown uh, and leaflets issued by 
unions about how to embrace non-discrimination in the workplace, there's this overwhelming demand for educational materials that education is the antidote to racism. The idea, though, was that education was going to be the long-term antidote to racism, obviously not something in the short term. And many uh, civil rights activists looked instead in the meantime to form alliances internationally. So we see a series of meetings between World War I and the end of World War II uh, by African uh, colonial territories, activists uh, trying to get independence in these African colonies, and civil rights activists in the United States. There was this sense of kinship between African-American activists and these anti-colonial activists in Africa that much of their struggles were very similar, despite the fact that, again, we're talking about independence for colonies uh, in the wake of World War II, ideally, in Africa versus gaining more civil rights at home, because there were a lot of similar tactics of segregation, especially if you look at places like South Africa, uh, for example, in the system of apartheid, which looked very similar to the system of Jim Crow segregation in the South. So for a brief period of time, in the later latter part of World War II in 1944 and 1945, there is this very real willingness to talk about the issue of racism and discrimination and how we as the United States can better live up to our founding values of uh, liberty for all, the ability of all Americans uh, to pursue happiness and have a right to life and liberty. That desire, however, uh, to be frank and open about talking about race is going to end with the end of the war. And the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War is going to be the topic of our next installment. Thanks for listening.